Would you like to get your USMLE registration fee paid for? Go to bit.ly, pay my USMLE, enter our contest, and you could win that grand prize. The cost of your USMLE or Comlex registration fee, thanks to physicianloans.com. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Welcome to the Inside the Board's podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. This is our Study Smarter series for the USMLE Step 1. Today it's Biochem Part 2. We've got some questions from our All Audio QBank, powered by Exam Circle, and a discussion between Stuart and myself on a biochemistry question at the end. For even more high-yield questions, go download the Inside the Boards beta app on the Apple App Store, where you can get hundreds of audio-optimized questions for Step 1, powered by Exam Circle. Or for step two in clerkships, powered by online MedEd, we've got a full-scale app in development now for Android and iOS, but for you Android users, um, we've got a solution which uh, still exists on our Podbean platform. You can go to insidetheboards.podbean.com or click the link in the show notes to get access. There's not as many questions in the Podbean version and it's not customizable uh, in order to like, you know, click the number of questions you want. They're all in tracks of 10 to 15 minutes, but we just are adding an extra 100 questions in the step one version of that. So for those of you who are studying for step one, you're in the home stretch until we get that combined app out. Um, That's our solution for our Android friends. Oh, and just to follow up, we had actually two listeners write in to help help us remember some of the congenital adrenal hyperplasia stuff. And it's kind of more of a visual thing, but WLLT6P on Podbean commented, and Jeff Beach, a second year at Rocky Vista University, basically said, you write out the numbers for the main congenital adrenal hyperplasia stuff, 21 hydroxylase, 17 hydroxylase and 11 hydroxylase deficiencies. Write out those numbers under the letters H and V for hypertension and virilization. Then, if the number is a 1, draw an up arrow and it's increased. So imagine this a table with H and V. Under the H and V again, you put 21. So Uh, In 21-hydroxylase deficiency, under the H, there's a 2, so nothing. And then under the V, virilization, it's an up arrow, so there's virilization in 21-hydroxylase deficiency. And in 17, hypertension occurs, up arrow, no effect on virilization. And then finally, in 11-hydroxylase deficiency, You have two ones, so a one under the H, a one under the V, and you get both with an up arrow. So positive hypertension, positive virilization. I thought that was pretty helpful. So thanks, you two, for writing in. 
Oh, and you guys can record actual questions for us, not just like practice questions, but like, hey, how would you approach this? Or, hey, I have a good way to remember this or that. You can do that right from our iOS beta app under the podcast submenu. At the bottom, there is a record a question feature. So definitely make use of that. And if you're cool with it, we'll throw those questions into the podcast and answer a few of them. So there you go. And now, now, actually now, here is a question from our All Audio QBank. A five-week-old girl is brought to the office because of vomiting and diarrhea for 12 hours. This is her first visit, and she appeared to be healthy at birth. She has had no sick contacts and has been exclusively breastfed. Physical examination shows hepatomegaly, jaundice, and early cataract formation. The child is also not meeting early developmental milestones. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Galactosemia B. Hurler syndrome C. Tay-Sachs disease or D. Von Gerke's disease The answer is A. Galactosemia Galactosemia is an autosomal recessive disorder due to a lack of galactose-1-phosphate uridyl transferase, G1PUT, galactosemia, G1PUT, galactose-1-phosphate uridyl transferase deficiency. Galactosemia results in the formation and accumulation of galactose metabolites and concomitant damage to the liver with fatty changes, cholestasis, cirrhosis, liver failure the eyes, cataract formation, and brain, leading to mental retardation and developmental delay. In infants with a galactose-1-phosphate-uridyl transferase deficiency, the accumulation of galactose metabolites is responsible for the pathophysiology. If the infant's diet is not modified to exclude milk products, this will result in damage to the liver, eyes, and brain. But let's look at the other answer choices as well. B was Hurler syndrome. Hurler syndrome is a severe form of mucopolysaccharidosis that typically becomes apparent between six months and two years of age. It's caused by a deficiency of the enzyme L-iguranidase. Prominent features include coarse facies, dwarfism, organomegaly, cataracts, and mental retardation, not diarrhea, vomiting, and jaundice. Next, Tay-Sachs disease. This is a lipid storage disease due to a deficiency of hexosaminidase A. There's an inexorable deterioration of mental and motor functions within a few months of birth, culminating in a vegetative state and death within three years. Some important things to note for your board's preparation with respect to Tay-Sachs. Ashkenazi Jews are primarily affected. A deficiency in hexosaminidase A results in gangliocide accumulation within the lysosome of nerve cells. This causes the neurodegeneration. Its inheritance pattern is autosomal recessive. On physical exam, a cherry red spot is noted on the macula, and the liver and spleen are of a normal size. Finally, we had type 1 glycogen storage disease, or von Gerke's disease, This is a lack of the glucose 6-phosphatase enzyme. The liver cannot release stored glucose, resulting in hepatomegaly and severe hypoglycemia, so the body relies on fat and protein catabolism for energy. 
notably with von Gerke's glucose 6-phosphatase deficiency. A stimulation test with glucagon, fructose, or galactose will not increase serum glucose. And here's another question. A 21-year-old male presents to the emergency room with a painful stocking glove neuropathy, as well as multiple blue-red spots on his thighs and abdomen. The patient also complains of anhydrosis. A blood sample is taken and sent to the laboratory to test for potential inborn errors of metabolism. The patient is found to have increased ceramide trihexoside levels, which is the most likely diagnosis. A. Fabry disease. B. Gaucher disease. C. Hurler syndrome. D. Eisel disease. E. Von Gerke disease. The correct answer is A. Fabry disease. The main explanation here is this patient has Fabry disease, an X length recessive lysosomal storage disease due to a deficiency in alpha-galactosidase A, leading to an accumulation of ceramide trihexoside. The disease may be asymptomatic apart from the presence of diffuse angiokeratomas. However, the accumulation of the sphingolipids can lead to systemic vasculopathy and further manifestations of the disease. The symptoms and presentation of Fabry often start in childhood or adolescence, Patients may complain of pain or burning in the hands and feet that worsens with exercise or hot weather. In addition to angiokeratomas, these patients may have decreased sweating, corneal clouding, abdominal discomfort, and back pain. Angiokeratomas are present in 66% of male and 36% of female patients with Fabry disease. They are non-blanching, red to blue-black lesions, 1 to 5 millimeters in diameter, The earliest lesions are observed on the hands, knees, elbows, and flanks. During adolescence, they may involve the genital area and gluteal cleft. Boys may also develop bouts of fever associated with severe pain in the abdomen and extremities, which can precede the angiokeratomas. Major takeaway. Fabry disease is an X-linked lysosomal storage disease caused by a deficiency in alpha-galactosidase A leading to the accumulation of ceramide trihexoside. The disease may present with angiokeratomas, decreased sweating, corneal clouding, and pain of the abdomen, back, and extremities. And up next, another high-yield biochem question. A six-month-old male is thought to have sickle cell anemia, and as his pediatrician, you want to sequence the gene that may be mutated causing this disease you decide to sequence the gene for the beta subunit of hemoglobin. In order to do this, you must perform polymerase chain reaction. You need to know which of the following in order to amplify the area of interest in his DNA. A. The predicted change in nucleotide sequence. B. The nucleotide sequence in the areas upstream and downstream to the nucleotide of interest. C the predicted change in amino acid sequence of the mutated protein. D. The change in number of hydrogen bonds within the nucleotide sequence of interest. E. The predicted change in size of the mutated protein. The correct answer is B. 
the nucleotide sequence in the areas upstream and downstream to the nucleotides of interest. The main explanation here is that polymerase chain reaction is a method with which to amplify an area of interest of DNA. Normally, specifically designed primers bind upstream and downstream to the area of interest. The sequence in between these primers is amplified and then sequenced to look for specific nucleotide changes that will then predict a possible change in amino acid sequence and protein structure and function. In sickle cell anemia, the beta subunit of hemoglobin is mutated at the 6th codon and glutamate is replaced by valine in the protein. This missense mutation changes protein function and causes sickle cell anemia, which is inherited in an autosomal recessive manner. Choice A is incorrect. The predicted change is unnecessary for performing PCR and sequencing the area of interest. The only known sequences must be where the primers bind to DNA. Choice C is incorrect because polymerase chain reaction deals with nucleic acids in DNA in this case. Protein sequencing is then predicted by changes in the DNA nucleotide sequences. Choice D is incorrect. Predicted changes in the number of hydrogen bonds may influence the parameters of the PCR assay itself, but have no influence on nucleotide or amino acid sequence. Choice E is incorrect because PCR is done on DNA, and thus the predicted size of the protein does not influence the assay itself. And finally, here are two more biochem questions. Go get even more of these with a subscription to our All Audio QBank on our iOS beta app. Just search inside the boards on the Apple App Store. A two-month-old boy is brought to the clinic because of yellow eyes and weakness for three days. His parents say that he appeared well before this time. Medical history is non-contributory. Examination shows scleral icterus and generalized jaundice. Complete blood count shows reduced hemoglobin levels. Peripheral blood smear shows echinocytes. Which of the following enzymes is most likely deficient in this patient? A. Citrate synthase. B. Glycogen synthase. C. Pyruvate kinase. Or D. Xanthine oxidase. And the correct answer is C. Pyruvate kinase. Pyruvate kinase deficiency is an inherited metabolic disorder of the enzyme pyruvate kinase, which affects the survival of erythrocytes. It is characterized by the presence of echinocytes. Both autosomal dominant and recessive inheritance have been observed with this disease. Classically and more commonly, the inheritance is autosomal recessive, like most enzymatic deficiencies. Pyruvate kinase deficiency is the second most common cause of enzyme-deficient hemolytic anemia. The first is glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase, G6PD deficiency. Erythrocytes manufacture ATP through glycolysis. A deficiency in pyruvate kinase, the enzyme that potentiates the last step of glycolysis, results in erythrocytes with decreased ATP. Due to the unavailability of adequate ATP, all active processes in the erythrocyte come to a halt. Sodium-potassium ATPase pumps are the first to stop, and because the cell membrane is more permeable to potassium than sodium, potassium leaks out. Water moves this potassium out, down its concentration gradient, from the cells, resulting in cellular desiccation. 
This explains the echinocyte from the Greek word echinos, meaning like a hedgehog or a sea urchin, which are the characteristic cells you see in pyruvate kinase deficiency. Little sea urchin or hedgehog-looking erythrocytes, characterized by many small, evenly spaced, thorny projections. Researchers are trying to determine genetic influences on myocardial infarction survival. Various levels of cholesterol are injected daily in genetically diverse mice populations. Mice are autopsied immediately upon death. Which of the following findings on myocardial tissue biopsy would represent this finding? A. Increased cellular sodium and cellular edema. B. Increased cellular calcium. C. Increased cellular pH. Or D. Increased cellular cytochrome C. And the answer is A. Increased cellular sodium and cellular edema. Cellular edema, due to an interruption of the sodium potassium pump, is a sign of reversible cellular damage. Other changes, which are evidence of irreversible cell damage, are increased cellular calcium, increased cellular pH, increased cellular cytochrome C, and karyolysis, which is dissolution of cell nuclei. And now the usual long-form question dissection with me and Stuart. A 30-year-old male presents to the emergency room with severe intractable abdominal pain the right upper quadrant area. He reports that he had been having intermittent pain over the past few weeks, but this episode has been persistent. An ultrasound reveals numerous gallstones. Patient is taken to the operating room for a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. After removal of the gallbladder, its contents were exposed, revealing numerous small black gallstones. Which of the following is most likely to be found on this patient's medical history? A. Morbid obesity. B. Chronic antibiotic use. C. Glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. Or D. Diabetes mellitus. All right, so the answer here is C. It's G6PD. G6PD. G6PDD. When I think of G6PD, I think blood. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah, so that's kind of why I like this question so much is because this takes it out of blood it, at least one step, you know, it, and I think that's an important fact for step one is doing these kind of higher order question thinking to make sure you really get a, a good grasp on what the material is actually trying to make sure you know. So obviously the key for this question is the black gallstones. Yeah, it hinges um, all on that, I'm sure. Exactly. There are two types of gallstones. From a very basic standpoint, I understand that pigmented gallstones have to do with blood and hemolysis and extra bilirubin, whereas something like brown gallstones has to do more with extra cholesterol and stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that's the, uh, the main point for this question. You have to take this and say, okay, which of these things causes gallstones? And then the answer for that is most of them can cause gallstones in some form. 
makes it a good question, right? Right. I mean, it's not a fun question if you're sitting there taking your step one, but it's a good question because each of the distractors exists on a continuum of things that cause gallstones, have a higher risk of causing gallstones. Which of these is causing the black gallstones in this case? Okay. So morbid obesity, maybe you have increased cholesterol synthesis and secretion. Maybe you end up with some cholesterol gallstones for that. Antibiotic use can lead to crystal formation and uh, cholesterol gallstone, right? Yep. But it's the pigmentation. So you'd expect a gallstone to be, I guess, unpigmented, maybe what, yellowish, white, something like that. Right. Um, Brown. Brown, light brown. But we have black here. And just like with melana and hematemesis, the black color comes from, I assume, heme. Right. So the black gallstones indicate high heme turnover due to hemolysis from right and that's what's occurring in this patient because they've got a uh, hemolytic episode right yeah so all right so g6pd basic facts x-linked condition patients have low levels of the enzyme glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase that's involved in red blood cell metabolism the thing i guess i associate mostly with it in my mind um, is somebody gets put on like one of these famous medications that precipitates a hemolytic episode. So, right. What what medication is that for you? For me, it's it's Bactrim or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, sulfa drugs in general. Right. And I think you probably had a disservice in your medical school training if you didn't have a vignette with somebody getting TMP, SMX, and having this hemolytic episode. However, this it, it is broader than that. I think one of the famous other types is having somebody who just ingests, ingested fava beans. Oh, and, that's right. um, but any sort of oxidative stress in that causes a buildup of oxidants in the blood could cause this episode because there's this deficiency in the enzyme. So you're not having as much uh, antioxidant efficiency within the red blood cells, right? Yeah. Another important thing that I want to mention is that sulfamethoxazole is important as a uh, competitive antagonist of paraminobenzoic acid, which is part of the tetrahydrofolic acid synthesis pathway. Okay. That's, you know, another direction that you might see this board question going where they give you this patient who has these gallstones, or maybe they tell you straight up that they have G6PD and then they want to know what does the antibiotic that you gave this patient do? And that would be where that paraminobenzoic acid was important. Okay. The so, other thing is I got a question that really stumped me on this with diuretic drugs. A lot of diuretics are sulfa drugs. So they don't have to necessarily have that antibiotic set up to make this question work, right? Yeah. So good good to keep in mind which drugs are sulfa drugs, even if they don't have the, the word sulfa in their name. Are there some examples uh, amongst the diuretics that I can't think of right now? I mean, the one that I'm going to go with is hydrochlorothiazide. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, you know, the anti-malarial medication also, it, the way it works is by making the blood a little more acidic and that causes more hemolysis. All right, so... You hemolyze uh, red blood cells 
due to oxidative stress that releases unconjugated bilirubin into the bloodstream, gets picked up by the, the liver, and it precipitates out, can't be conjugated and put into the hepatobiliary tract and to be dumped into the GI tract. So you get this, this buildup of black pigment that precipitates into gallstones and the presentation of a cholelithiasis uh, that we see here in this vignette. Yeah. All right. So cool. All right. That's a good question. That's a good one. All right. That's it for today. Couple reminders. We have a few other podcasts over on the main channel. Uh, this week, we're covering what to do in your home stretch of USMLE Step One Prep on our audio blog series sponsored by our friends at Med School Tutors. The Physiology by Physio podcast is releasing episodes every week. Our high yield review in conjunction with Physio and hosted by our own Greg Rodden, who is as of Friday, a doctor now. Finally, we have the Medical Nemonist podcast hosted by our own Chase DeMarco, covering accelerated learning techniques and memory hacks to help you retain those things you've learned. So check out all of what Inside the Boards is doing and tell your friends and good luck in this home stretch of your step one study and as you move into third year. Or if you're already a third year or a first year, Thank you for listening along. We'll have more content focused for you guys in the coming months. That's all for today.